In case 08205, Citizens United versus the FEC, Justice Kennedy has the opinion of the Court. When the government seeks to use its full power, including the criminal law, to command where a person may get his or her information or what distrusted source he or she may not hear, it uses censorship to control thought. This is unlawful. The First Amendment confirms the freedom to think for ourselves. On numerous occasions, we have recognized Congress' legitimate interest in preventing the money that is spent on elections from exerting undue influence on an officeholder's judgment and creating the appearance of such influence. We reject that argument. We conclude that those precedents now must be reexamined. The resulting transparency enables the electorate to make informed decisions and give proper weight to different speakers and different messages. The judgment of the district court is reversed. The case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. continue to shape the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. Citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more. Applied Political Philosophy. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. It seems as though courts do much more business these days than legislatures, particularly at the federal level. Congress very rarely passes any meaningful legislation, but the Supreme Court seems to be handing down a whole raft of landmark rulings year after year. In this episode, we're going to compare the way legislatures and courts approach political reform. In our first segment, an excerpt from a lecture I delivered in April 2020, I talk about how these two avenues of reform differ from each other and why the judiciary seems to be winning the battle to control the direction of political reform in the 21st century. The statutory avenue is a challenging one because it requires a majority of two elected bodies that are constituted differently. The main obstacle to statutory reform is that Every piece of legislation that gets passed by Congress or by a state legislature has to be agreed upon by two different bodies, word for word, letter for letter, comma for comma, and then it has to be signed into law by an executive. Democracy in action, the statutory avenue, is what we might think of as normal politics, day-to-day politics, as opposed to extraordinary politics, which is the constitutional amendment, or judicial policymaking, which is also very day-to-day, in fact, even more day-to-day than the legislatures because courts are constantly taking action. Courts are constantly evaluating cases. Statutory approaches to any issue, they are sporadic because essentially what is done in a legislature is up to the constraints of time and the legislative priorities of whatever party happens to be in the majority, or if there's a split, then the the way that each of the party leaders sort of negotiate their priorities. But statutory, while it's what I've just referred to as normal politics, it's day-to-day politics, it's always ongoing, the attention to any one particular issue is sporadic. And any given legislative session is only going to focus on a small handful of issues. Now, Other business gets done. There's always things being done. There's always committee hearings. There's always bills being written. There's always bills being considered. There's always all kinds of investigations happening and oversight. But what gets across the finish line is very much more sporadic. And it's largely based on a a number of different factors. It's reactive to what the political conditions are. And political conditions change all the time. 
They change based on new elections, bringing new people in. They change based on shifts in public opinion. Public opinion shifts because of major events. Public opinion also shifts just because time passes and new concerns just come up and and, uh, new generations rise and old generations die out. So political conditions are, I won't say constantly changing, but they do change somewhat frequently. And of course, when there are major events such as a pandemic or a terrorist attack or an economic crisis, that will change the political conditions. What goes to the top of the policy agenda depends on the political conditions. We don't get political reform in the statutory avenue very often, and one of the reasons we don't is because the political conditions don't generally merit elected officials changing the rules of the system. The sort of normal institutional obstacle is the bicameral legislature and the fact that each of the chambers tends to have a you know, different makeup. If you've got an election cycle of two years versus six years, if you have constituencies that are district-based versus an entire state, if you have 435 members of one body and 100 members of another body, all of those and other differences between the two bodies are going to contribute to different perspectives on what is important. So there are those hurdles. The other major hurdle for political reform is that elected officials are being asked by political reformers to rewrite the rules that they, the elected officials, are already winning under. And when you have a system that is working for you, why would you possibly change it? A system could seem to be broken from the outside. Voters might say, there's too big a role of money, and incumbents have too much of an advantage, and Congress doesn't need to be responsive to the the desires and will of the people because of these uh, barriers to us getting rid of them. That could seem like a broken system from the outside. From the inside, from people who are winning, it seems like the system is functioning perfectly well. Political reformers are usually asking elected officials, they're asking people to to accept that the system is broken and needs to be fixed when there's an automatic tilt towards elected officials thinking that the electoral system works just fine. And the only changes that they're really going to want to make is to make it even more amenable to their continued victory. If, for example, you are somebody who is elected because a certain group of voters is way more likely to vote because of structural, cultural barriers to the participation of certain people and the lack of barriers to the participation of other people, and the people who have fewer barriers are your voters, and the people who have higher barriers are your opponent's voters, not only do you not want to get rid of those barriers, you might want to actually increase the strength of those barriers. So you, you're, you're going to want to change the rules only to make things even easier for yourself, which will tend to go against what political reformers have a problem with, right? If, if the incumbency return rate is too high from the point of view of political reformers, if that just gives us an additional layer of status quo orientation to our political system, and it means that real change, responsive to changes in, in uh, public opinion, are extremely difficult to achieve, then reformers are going to want to make it harder for incumbents to win. Incumbents, who are the ones who are writing the rules, are going to want to make it easier for incumbents to win. The political conditions not only have to be right, but the political conditions have to be very strong. So that the calculation of the people who are in charge of the rules have to say, the cost of doing nothing are bigger than the cost of trying to do something. Now, one of the other conditions, political conditions, that needs to exist 
for political reform specifically, because this particular area reform has the additional barrier, which is that you're asking the people who are winning underneath the current set of rules to change those rules. And as a reformer, you're asking them to change it in a way that's probably going to make things harder for them, not easier for them. You have to be asking for that in a time when the public cares about that issue, when the costs of inaction are higher than action, and when your choice is, okay, if we don't do something, it's going to be very difficult to get reelected. And if we do do something, we're going to make it more difficult to get reelected. But on balance, let's at least do something because we know what that avenue is going to be like. The other thing that contributes to a political reform movement getting sporadic attention and getting across the finish line is a small set of individuals who either have nothing to lose because they are probably they're retiring and they're more now concerned less about getting reelected and more about legacy. At a certain point in an elected official's career, legacy enters the calculation and pushes aside re-election drive. Or, and these two things can actually go hand in hand, or you have enough uh, people who actually feel safe in their position that they can change the rules and not worry that that's going to hurt their chances of getting reelected in the future. When those two things align, when you have a safe seat and you know, for example, that putting into place certain kinds of rules aren't going to change your seat's safety or it's going gonna, it's gonna to chip at the safety so little that you don't have to worry about it, that gives you then a chance to actually have a legacy and say, I was part of this major reform movement. And it goes on, it goes in your obituary. The latest round of campaign finance reform, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, otherwise known as the uh, McCain-Feingold Act, was bipartisan in nature. And it was bipartisan not because lots of members of both parties were for it. It was bipartisan because the two primary sponsors were one Democrat and one Republican, and they themselves, in a way that was kind of beyond their party identities, they themselves agreed and were considering this as part of their legacy, that this was something they wanted to work together on. And because money in politics is kind of an enduring issue, always, it's always simmering in the, in the public consciousness as a problem. It is, it's really the one problem that we're consistently aware of for the last hundred plus years. And because the country was so prosperous in the late 90s, and there, there were no major enemies, this is pre-9-11, where most of this work is done, it's a peaceful, prosperous, stable country, and there's a couple of legacy-oriented, prominent, powerful elected officials who push for a major campaign finance reform movement. For the first time in one full generation, because the last time there was meaningful campaign finance reform was in the mid-70s, 25 years earlier, and that came as a result of Watergate. Political conditions are sometimes positive in nature, like we develop prosperity and peace and other issues drop away, and so you can actually focus on a problem that, it, that is simmering, like money and politics, but that can't, doesn't get to a boil because other things are boiling. Watergate brought the issue of corruption and campaign finance and the behavior of, cam of elected officials and candidates directly, because of that crisis, directly into the consciousness of the American people. And so elected officials were like, oh, we have to do something. Otherwise, if we don't, this is going to be the case where we're damned if we don't. It's going to change the landscape that we have trod upon for decades and that we are adapted to and, and winners at. But if we don't do this, 
then we're going to be thrown out for sure because the public is really, because of this major crisis, really demanding uh, action. Once the conditions are right for a statutory approach to political reform, we're going to address money in politics. The bill that gets written and passed tends to be large. This is because once there's now not just an opportunity for reformers to get something done and they want to get a lot done, because reformers understand, I think experienced reformers understand that opportunities to get a bill passed don't come along very often. So when there is an actual opportunity, you better take it and, and do as much as you possibly can with it. But also, elected officials want to give, once they decide that the people need something from them, they want to give them a big thing. And then if there's legacy involved, nobody's going to, wants to build their legacy on a trivial movement of the political system in a better direction. They want to move it in a pretty big direction. And so statutory reforms tend to be big. They're enduring because our legislative system is so status quo oriented that once a law has been passed, technically it can be amended or repealed at any time with the exact same institutional process that got that law in place in the first place. It just takes a majority of both houses and the signature of the executive or a veto override. The exact same conditions repeal something as got it voted in the first place. But a repeal effort faces the same obstacles as uh, a reform effort in the first place. And all of the reasons why the political conditions are so rare and infrequent to get a reform across the finish line are doubly so for repealing a reform. They're enduring because it's really hard to undo that which was itself was really hard to do. Why is it vulnerable? Well, the reason why it's vulnerable is because any statutory reform effort in whatever area of policy happens to be in is subject to the judicial policymaking system. Every act of Congress is potentially a subject for judicial scrutiny and overturning through judicial review. That's the vulnerability. One of the things that reformers try to do as carefully as they possibly can is they try to tailor the legislation to withstand judicial scrutiny. It's not as though members of Congress uh, and state legislatures just write bills and just say, okay, that's, get, get that done, and all we care about is it pleasing the people. They want to please the people enough that they get reelected. They also want to make sure that it will withstand judicial logic. The problem is, judicial scrutiny is, while sort of predictable because of precedent, it is also unpredictable because the makeup of the Supreme Court, the final decider, the makeup of the appellate courts, which do a lot of the decision making, is always changing. But it's not changing in a steady, predictable, or similar way to the way the makeup of the political system is changing, which happens as a result of elections and the political conditions that have a lot to do with public opinion and uh, the events that are going on around each particular election. The court makeup changes slowly and fitfully, right? And certain administrations get way more appointments than others. And the two main considerations for the speed of turnover are whether or not the president has a Senate that is controlled by his party, which doesn't always happen, and whether or not there are enough vacancies to be able to get a compliant Senate to be able to fill a lot of spots. Neither one of those things is directly in the control of anybody. A statutory reform is enduring until it's not, and it's always vulnerable to judicial overturn, but its vulnerability increases as time passes in the future 
when the court looks different than it looks today, and it will, it always does, the Supreme Court is an evolving organism, it evolves at an unpredictable and uh, uncontrollable pace, and the direction of that uh, development is also unpredictable and uncontrollable because it's fully based on presidential and Senate politics, as well as longevity and age and retirement, all that stuff. A lot of factors go into the speed of the court's evolution and the direction of it, but that's what the tipping point is. And in Citizens United, both Scalia and Kennedy in Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce laid out what was basically the logic that the majority, the five justices that ruled uh, on the side of throwing out these restrictions that came from the uh, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, they were two of those five. The other three basically joined the court during the subsequent decades and accepted the logic, and Scalia and Kennedy started essentially what we could think of as an intellectual tradition that was then adopted by the majority of the court, and that's when a tipping point is reached. Once the tipping point is hit, and the tipping point in the case of campaign finance was hit with the five to four majority in Citizens United, you know, people are so outraged by five to four rulings. Landmark cases that are ruled five to four, it's like, it's, so, it's such a divisive issue. How can the court just take this one direction and overturn the direction for decades? Well, the reason why that's the case is because five to four is the tipping point. That's where the tipping point occurs. You don't wait until you have seven justices to activate a change in direction. It takes decades to build up that five in the first place, right? So Citizens United was decades in the, it seems sudden to the rest of us, to, to the public. And it does produce a pretty sudden change. And the law as it was written in 2000, it was written starting in the late 90s, but the law as it was passed in 2002 looked like it was going to be an enduring piece of reform because it had been constructed with precedent that had been around since the 1970s in mind. What they couldn't have seen was that the tipping point was coming relatively quickly, right? Between 2002 when the law was passed and 2010 when Citizens United was ruled, that was when there was a crossover and of course, it was eight years of a Republican president putting people on the bench who agreed with the logic of Scalia and Kennedy back in the Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce case. That case, the center's logic was the correct way to see the balance between congressional regulation of the democratic system and the requirements of the First Amendment, because that's really what was that issue in Citizens United. At bottom, the court's opinion is just a rejection of the common sense of the American people as expressed in 1907 in the Senate court on the Tillman Act, which observed that the evils of the that the evils of the use of corporate money money in connection connection with the political elections are so generally recognized that the committee deems it unnecessary to make any argument in favor of the general purpose of this nation. What was common sense? In this next segment, we hear a proposal for reforming the judiciary to make it more democratic. This report was first filed in May of 2022, about a year after President Biden formed a commission to examine potential reforms to the federal judiciary. Hello, welcome to the Judicial Reform Presentation. We'll be presenting information relative to the future of the Supreme Court nomination process. Our proposal focuses on reforming the appointment process of justices. 
Currently, justice appointments land in the president's laps by mere chance or bad faith political gaming. Justices serve for life on the court with no age or term cap to their services. The result is a benefit to choosing younger justices over better justices, and the supreme law of the land resting in unrepresentative hands who are not unlikely to be outdated from shifting societal morals and ethics, and who might have age-related intellectual decline. Our proposal is looking at guaranteeing each president an appointment on their first and third year of their presidency, creating an 18-year term limit for justices, and capping their age at around 70 or 80 years, resolving the issues our current system allows. When exploring some existing reform similar to the one we are proposing, the states are a great place to start. As it turns out, 49 of the 50 states have some kind of age or term limit on Supreme Court justices, with almost all opting for term limits over an age cap. As the picture on the left shows, many states, including Oregon, have opted for a six-year term limit for all justices, with a potential for reappointment or re-election. This map also marks only four states, all in New England, that have no term limits. Three of these states have an age limit of 70 years old, with only Rhode Island matching the federal Supreme Court's current appointment and term system. Another aspect to note about state Supreme Court structures can be seen in the map on the right. This map demonstrates the process of judicial selection in each state, with the vast majority of states opting for some kind of election mechanism. The gray indicates states that hold nonpartisan elections for justices, like Oregon. The blue denotes states that have retention elections, where only the incumbent justice is on the ballot, and the people vote whether to grant another term. Though our plan does not include judicial elections, this aspect of the judicial structure present in the majority of U.S. states may demonstrate a desire to hold justices more accountable than they are at the federal level currently. Additionally, the notable prevalence of term limits in almost all states further demonstrates that the implementation of term limits is not a foreign concept to this country, and so should, in theory, be more widely accepted at the federal level as seen in the states. We are citing the research paper Models of Judicial Tenure, Reconsidering Life Limits, Age Limits, and Term Limits for Judges by Brian Opeskin as a comparative judiciary analysis of the United States, Australia, and South Africa. The United States Supreme Court employs the lifelong judicial tenure model, with methods of removal stemming from Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution that judges shall hold their offices during good behavior, and Article 2, Section 4, which allows for impeachment for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Although there are retirement incentives, like the Rule of 80, in which a judge may retire on a lifetime pension if the sum of their age and years of service is 80, and senior service, which involves working part-time and receiving a full judicial salary, the impact of these changes has been weak, as the average retirement age has been increasing since 1985. Australia's Constitution, modeled closely on the United States' Constitution, previously appointed judges for life, only removed for proved misbehavior or incapacity. In 1977, Australia introduced an adoption to their constitution in which judicial office expired when the judge reached a specified age, effectively imposing age limits. This referendum was passed with bipartisan support as over 80% of voters voted to pass the amendment, citing the reasoning that judges are not immune from the geriatric processes of mental decay and that an age limit would lead to a younger body of judges who are closer to the people and have a more current set of values. South Africa introduced an interim constitution immediately following a post-apartheid South Africa solidifying that constitution in 1996, which imposed seven-year non-renewable term limits on judges. A constitutional amendment in 2001 gave significantly more power to Parliament to impose judicial term and age limits, and subsequently, 
Parliament extended judges' terms to 12 years and an age limit of 70 years. Parliament also created circumstances in which judges may be required to serve 15 years or until 70 years of age. If the 12-year term limit was reached before 15 years of total judicial service in lower courts, for example, then three more years would be served on the bench. If the age limit of 70 years was reached before 15 years of service, the judge would continue to serve until 75 years of age or 15 years of service, whichever came first. Comparing these judicial systems offers a few significant takeaways. The average termination age for each country's judges was 80.1 years in the United States, 68.6 in Australia after age limits were imposed, and 61.1 years in South Africa. The average age of judges serving on the Supreme Court was 69.6 years in the United States, 69.4 in Australia, and 66.5 in South Africa. The average length of judicial service was 17 years in the United States, 15.9 in Australia, and 11.5 in South Africa. What we can gather from this analysis is that age and term limits from the South African judicial model create a younger Supreme Court and shorter time served on the bench, which aligns with our goal for reforming the Supreme Court in the United States. There have been some attempts at reforming the Supreme Court, although unsuccessful. In 1954, the 83rd Congress proposed an age cap for Supreme Court justices at 75. While the amendment passed in the Senate, partisan divides kept it from going further. By November, the Democrats, who opposed the amendment, took over the majority. The 84th Congress ultimately never voted on this. Recently, in 2020, the House had proposed a bill titled the Supreme Court Term Limits and Regular Appointments Act of 2020. The bill sought to propose 18-year term limits and two appointments per presidential term. It ultimately died in committee, likely due to its unconstitutionality. While our group is using the bill as inspiration for our amendment, we recognize its flaws, such as a lack of succession plan in the event of untimely death and a 120-day time limit on the Senate, which would give the president an unchecked appointment if the Senate failed to act. The time to act on our judicial system is now. Even our current president agrees. During an interview with 60 Minutes in 2020 during his political campaign, President Biden quoted that our Supreme Court is out of whack. To properly evaluate and implement the right measures that would aid in transformation of the court, he fulfilled his political promise through the enactment of Executive Order 14023. On April 9, 2021, the Presidential Commission of the Supreme Court was formed. It consisted of 36 unpaid bipartisan individuals of academic scholar, law, political science, and historical backgrounds as they performed a deep analysis of the Supreme Court with the intention of potential recommendations that could be implemented for the future. Some of these topics included the constitutional process where the president nominates, advice and consent of the Senate, and appointed justices to the Supreme Court. Biden also asked the commission to evaluate various historical periods in the history of our nation when these very matters were already subjective to critical assessment and could have prompted a proposal for reform. This gives us evidence and hope that there are enough critics out there to question if these traditional procedures of the Supreme Court accurately represent the progressive era we see today. While nothing is official yet, the mere fact that the Supreme Court current roles and procedures is being contested through presidential review is enough to know that reworking the system is possible. Action should be furthered on this momentum, turning what seems impossible to probable.